Hey, Morning Founder Church, my name is Daniel Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's really a privilege for me to be up here today uh, preaching to you. We're keeping going in this series. We're calling the Songs of Christmas. This is week three. My friend Chris Mixon, our student pastor, he preached week one on Mary. Last week, Robert Green, our senior pastor, preached on Zechariah, and here I am, me. I walked in this morning, uh, Micah Smith, my friend who's playing electric guitar this morning, after the worship team had a little bit of shuffling around, he looked at me and went, I have something to say, but I'm not going to say it because it's mean. And I was like, aren't we friends? Come on. Isn't that what friends are for? And he said, ah, great. We're all backups this morning. So <laughs> glad you're here with me this morning. Uh, backup microphone, backup preacher, all the thing. But we're uh, excited to be here and hope that, here we go, you'll join us next week on Christmas Eve. Apparently, we're taking Christmas Eve very literal. It's Christmas evening. So if you come here next Sunday morning, 930 or 11, you will be probably mostly by yourself. Maybe a few of you will be together. You could have some unsanctioned church gathering. Or you could join us at 2.30 and 4 p.m. on Sunday, Christmas Eve. And I think this is something we can all uh, get to together. But as a pastor and a friend, I want to help us think. This is a soft season for people, uh, where people would look around and they would see the thing that happens as a religious institution and a cultural calendar kind of collide, where we would see Christmas and Christmas Eve be a season where lots of people are open and searching and seeking, uh, not just to find a place or an invitation from a person that they know into a local body, but even beyond that, that someone might wonder uh, what faith is to them and who Jesus might be in this season of their life. So my encouragement to you would be find somebody, invite them to Christmas Eve here, 2.30, 4 p.m. All right, now that the business is done, here's what I'm going to tell you. If you turn to Luke chapter 2, if you're a paper Bible person, I want to honor you for that. And if you have one in front of you, then uh, there's a pewback Bible that you could use there. I'll be on the screen as always, but we'll be picking up in the Song of Simeon this week. We'll take a look at this Simeon, uh, ancient, holy, righteous man that we don't know a ton about outside of this. But in Luke chapter 2, we'll pick up together, starting in verse 21. One. But as is my custom, I'm going to tell you what I tell you before I tell you what I'll tell you. So we'll look at three things here. The first is dedication, the second is declaration, and the third is division. The dedication of Simeon, the dedication of Jesus, the dedication of Jesus' parents, declaration that there's something in Christmas that says you need to know about this, and division. Merry Christmas. We're preaching about division. We'll see this in Luke 2, pick it up in 21. At the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given to him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it's written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what's said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. There's so much in there that I wish I could get to, but for us to set the table together, we see this account given at the time of Jesus's dedication in the temple. You can find a lot of adjacent context to this in Leviticus chapter 13, a ton of Levitical custom where people would worship the Lord through Old Testament rituals that continued into the day of Jesus, through doing things like making sacrifices to confess and admit our sin and our dependency on a high and holy God. But we would see this really important, a couple things for free, that Jesus was given his name before he was born, which is so important as we think about uh, 
doubt and cynicism and skepticism. It's not new to our world in 2023, but it's ancient and was very much there in the ancient Near East when Jesus came into the world, that there would be people who would wonder, is he a nice man? Is he a magician? Is he a great moral teacher? As C.S. Lewis would put it, Lord, lunatic, or liar. Who is Jesus? It's important that we see that Jesus' divine right was granted before his conception. And that's what we remember at Christmas, the virgin birth of our Lord who would be willing to come into an imperfect world as the most perfect man who ever lived. Fully God, fully man, willing to live a life, to die on the cross for our sin so that we could be made right with God. That's what we remember at Christmas. And it started before Jesus was even born on the earth. But we see that they're headed to Jerusalem, that Jesus' parents themselves were committed to their own personal holiness and righteousness. It's an important question for us to ask. What are you responsible for? Who are you responsible for? And what are the ways that you're trying to make those things right with God? Are you a parent? Do you have a business? Do you have friends? You have things in your life that you have sway and influence over. And to recognize that God's given those things to you to trust, to entrust back to him, to trust him with, to say, God, this isn't my kid, this is your kid. I love child dedication at Fawner Church. It's mirrored so much in the ancient Jewish way and even what we see the Lord Jesus himself being willing to do where we have child upon child up on the stage. They're like spilling out onto the ground. We have so many kids here and we're so grateful for that. But as Jesus' parents would go to dedicate him that's where we pick up, and we meet the author of our song today, Simeon. Now, there's a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said... We'll put a pin in what he said, but it's important for us to look here that when we see the dedication of Jesus, the presentation of him in the temple to say, this is a firstborn son who we want to love and serve and honor you, we see the dedication of this man, Simeon, who is committed to seeing the fulfillment of God's promise of salvation to all the people. So we see great things about Simeon that are important for us to glean through. Seven, really fast. He was where God was. He was in Jerusalem. Think about your own life. How committed are you, not just to this gathering, to be a part of a church in a significant and regular way, that you would be one who would come to church and you would talk about it when you leave, that you would uh, see this as more than just a building, but a gathered and assembled people for the glory of God and for our common good. How often are you thinking about being where God is. You would see that Simeon was righteous. He believed that God could make him right. He was a worshiper of the Lord. He trusted in God for grace and direction, that he was devout, that he didn't just think those things, but he did those things, that his life was lived in a way where he would be about the business of God all the days of his life. We see beyond that, that he was doing this thing, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, consolation is not a word that I use very often. Maybe you use consolation, but often I think about consolation in our context as a consolation prize. I started digging and doing research on consolation prizes and when they started, you know, prizes for the first loser, as the great philosopher Ricky Bobby and Talladega Knights would say, if you're not first, you're last. So there's very much a part of uh, my, my bandwidth and uh, mental frame for consolation prizes is you're the first loser. Congratulations. But 
I was thinking about consolation prizes in my own life, and Carly, my wife, and I were talking this week, and remembered that we both lost uh, respective B's competition in middle school. She was second place in the spelling B in the seventh grade, and I was second place in the geography B in the eighth grade. First of all, I didn't really know there was a geography B until we started doing it in history class, and I guess I just guessed well enough. But you give me a map, and I'm dangerous, I suppose. So, but that's not what consolation is. It's not a second place, a first loser. This is not that God would go, hey, I didn't get this salvation thing right the first time. These civil and ceremonial laws, kind of a lot. Uh, all this worship, it's probably getting pretty expensive for people, having to buy animals and make the trek up to Jerusalem. No, that's not what this is. It's not a plan B or a second thing. But consolation is to come and to make things right. Some translations of Scripture would transfer that, translate that word as comfort that he would be waiting for the comfort of Israel. But even comfort is a little different than what we really see here. See, in the Greek, the New Testament language that Luke would use here, the word consolation is very closely linked to what we see the Holy Spirit do. If you've been in church for a while, maybe you're a Sunday school person or you're an amateur Greek scholar yourself, the word that we often use to describe the Holy Spirit uh, you hear sometimes is the word paraclete, which is that Greek concept of someone that would be a helper and a comforter and a counselor and a friend. It had legal implications, almost like a defense attorney, someone that would have the right to come into a place and say, this is the way it's supposed to be because I saw it happen. This person who's being accused of this thing that's not true, this situation, that's not what happened. This is what happened, and I have the authority to speak on that. And that's what we see here with the consolation of Israel, that Israel had been distant from the Lord. The people had been unfaithful. God made a covenant with them. I will be your God. You will be my people. You will possess and inherit the land. Life will be good. And time after time, they turned their eyes to other things. They worshiped idols, things made with human hands. They worshiped other ideologies. They would follow pagan religions of the day, and they would put God, instead of being big G, little g, like an accessory on the periphery of their life. And because of that, the people of Israel were unfaithful and they turned their back on right worship of God. But Jesus would come to set all things right and to give us the ability to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. So the Simeon, who would have been old, how old? Who knows? It's interesting to think about our sanctified imagination together. We don't have many other instances or records of the Simeon, but we do know that he made it a regular point to go to the temple. He wasn't a holy man by trade. It's not as if he just was working in the temple one day and he saw Jesus, but he made it a priority to go and be where God was, to go and be where he knew he could find the fulfillment of this promise that God had put in his heart. He knew that if he wanted to see God move, he had to move towards God. And that's what we see in Simeon that he was under the influence of the Holy Spirit, that he was guided by what God would want to do in his life. How often do you ask that question of God? God, what do you want me to do? How do you want to use me today? What do you want to show me today? How good are we, church, at listening to the Holy Spirit? And we would see this, that he found this child Surely he was across the way in the Temple Mount. Hundreds of people, thousands of people in the way. And he ran across People were probably thinking, there goes that Simeon again. He's looking for the Christ. And he ran across and he found the child and he took him. How many people snatch your babies? He took him and he lifted him up and he sang a song. It's the last thing we see from Simeon, that he was quick to take up and quick to bless. 
this idea that he took up, it's that he embraced, that he held close, that he esteemed, that he elevated, and that he blessed him. Simeon to the Christ child is a picture of what our God is to us, that he sees us, he seeks us out, he takes us up, he speaks the words of life to us. Friends, how good are we at doing that to one another? In a world of frenemies, where it's easy to have people who are opponents, in a world of keeping score and getting ahead, how good are you at finding people, finding good things, and praising the excellent things? How good are you at seeing people and taking them up and giving them life? We see dedication, the dedication of Christ, the dedication of his parents, the dedication of Simeon. Secondly, we see this declaration. We see that there's something in Christmas that's declarative, that says this must go out. I must tell people about this. We see Simeon burst into song here in Luke 2. He says this, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And Jesus' father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Simeon, as a response to the first Christmas, would say, this everyone needs to know about. The corners of the earth must know this Christ. And there's something for us where we think Christmas is glad tidings and happy times and big dinners. And there's something that we glean from this in the gospel, sure. But even in our world, for people that aren't walking with the Lord, we think Christmas time, uh, things need to be right. We look at pain and brokenness and suffering at Christmas. People who are without people and close relationships or broken families to gather around People that have been uh, in some season of material poverty and homelessness. We look at people with food insecurity, and we, we see all these things more acutely at Christmas because we know something about God coming close means that things shouldn't stay the way that they are. And when I think about this, and I thought about songs of Christmas, this series, we said we'd all kind of pick a song. I thought about this Christmas song, this Christmas song titled, Do They Know It's Christmas? This was uh, recorded by a group that went by the name Band Aid. Uh, they're English, so I guess that's less weird in, in English uh, in the UK than it is here. Band-Aid, I think like, you know, Band-Aid, Band-Aid. But they were going to perform some aid together, and they were a band. So the story behind this song, if you don't know it, uh, this is kind of a, I don't know, B-side Christmas song, but I promised I wouldn't sing it in the first one, and I did, and then I guess I'm going to sing it here. I'm not a singer, as my daughter tries to remind me regularly to keep me humble. But uh the hook of it is, do they know it's Christmas time at all? And then it's like, da-da. It's got some does. I did the final countdown last time. I went, da-da-da-da-da, but that's not it. So anyway, it's got some does after it. But the thing, uh, the, the feel-good line of the whole thing for me is, no, there won't be snow in Africa this Christmas time. The only waterfall is bitter tears. I'm like, wow, happy Christmas for everybody. But this song was written as a response to a once-in-a-lifetime uh, one writer would put it, uh, famine of biblical proportions in Ethiopia in 1984. And what happened was the British Broadcasting Corporation went to Ethiopia and they documented this great famine that was caused by a mix of uh, geographic things and by some war-torn 
a geopolitical climate that existed there. And what they found were that there were so many people who were starving in this great famine. They followed and documented really closely a Red Cross nurse, and her responsibility was to decide who was healthy enough to be administered food at these feeding stations. And her a journal that was released a few years ago, she wrote in pretty great detail, I see 10 rows of at least 100 people apiece, and they all need food, and I have to decide who's well enough to eat. How did this become my life? And uh, she would go on to say that she felt as if she was like a Nazi sending people to the death camps as she saw who needed food and who was able to get food and the great rift in the middle. So, uh, British rocker Bob Gelding, he pulled some people together, they wrote that song, and since then it's made over 200 million English pounds that has gone to do some relief in North Africa. And we would see, even for people who might not be walking with the Lord in a broken world, that there's something about Christmas that says this should be different. And for us as the church, the gospel makes it that much richer, that much sweeter, that much fuller. So we see this, Simeon would sing some personal things. He would declare that God kept a promise to him. My eyes have seen your salvation. You're letting your servant depart in peace. He found a release and a freedom from a promise that God had put in his life. Now, in a church like this, across two services, there are lots of people uh, with different denominational backgrounds and theological positions on what it means for God to make you a promise. For some people, you might feel like God has made you a very specific promise. For other people, you might feel like you hold on to the general promises of God. We even sang about God's promises earlier. So in the general sense, we'll follow that thread together, church. We know that God is going to be faithful even when we're faithless. We know that he's one who's the just one and the justifier of our sin. We do know that he's close, like a counselor and a comforter and a guide and a friend. We know that he will never leave us or forsake us. And that as the east is from the west, so our sin is set apart from us in the eyes of the Lord. So we know that there are promises that we can hold on to when Satan, who would be the accuser of the brethren, one who would seek to steal and kill and destroy, would come against us and lie to us. We can remember who God is and who he says that we are. But for some of you, might, you might feel like you have a specific and personal promise from God that God promised you that a broken relationship could be restored, that God promised you that your bitter struggle with addiction will one day end, that the sin that so easily besets you, that creeps its ugly little head day after day, will one day be something that you conquer. Whatever it is for you, you might have a specific promise, and we see in Simeon a commitment, not just to believe it, but to live his life around it. Remember, he went to the temple day after day to see God moved. He moved towards God. What are you doing, church, to see God's promises fulfilled in your life? The second thing we see this is that Simeon would declare God's perfectly prepared salvation. He would say, you've prepared this salvation in front of all people. And it's fascinating to see for us so often we wonder because of the brokenness of the world and the suffering we see if something's off. Right, it would be easy for people to look at the Old Testament and to think, oh, the burden of civil and ceremonial law, the burden of having to make your sacrifices, the burden of having to go through purification rituals. And then we still didn't follow you 
and you sent us away and you brought us back. Surely this new thing is a new thing. But Jesus is not God's plan B. Jesus was always plan A for salvation. From before the foundation of time, Jesus knew that he would step into the world to be born as a child, frail and vulnerable, but fully divine with the full power and authority of God the Father. That he would be willing to take on such a paradigm, that he would be willing to live in a way where he would have no place to lay his head, no, no great affluence, no comfort, not even particularly beautiful. That he would be willing to take that on for us, to show us our need for a savior. He would show us suffering and brokenness and weakness in the world and our own journey to be like him in humility and dependency. That the plan of Jesus is a perfectly prepared plan that we find in the fullness at Christmas. And the last thing we see is this, that God would declare his glory to the ends of the earth. He would say, this, your coming, your gospel, to see you, it is a light for the Gentiles, the Gentiles, people who were not Jewish, that were not people of the covenant, that were not in the chosen people of God that he would use to reveal himself to for the greater glory of the world. He would see that this Jesus, this gospel, goes to this place, and it must go beyond this place. And that's what we remember at Christmas, that Jesus came to all peoples. Now, I tried to get away from preaching this next section. I couldn't. It's a great education for us, and I pray it's convicting for us as a church. It fits too well, because when you think about the world, uh, you may not have a picture of who has access to the gospel and who doesn't have access to the gospel, of people who have Bible translations in their language and people that have established churches in their corners of the world. But if we trust what Simeon says is true, that Jesus, to see Jesus, the literal name Jesus means Jehovah, Yahweh, is salvation. So for Simeon to say, my eyes have seen your salvation, it's for us to take Jesus to all people everywhere. What are we willing to do to get the gospel to the other side of the world? It's complicated often for some of us to think about how to take the gospel to the other side of the world when we don't really even want to take the gospel to the end of our sidewalk. We don't want to take it next door, so how are we supposed to take it to the nations? But for us, it's important, and for us, as, as we think about this church and our future and what we want to make investments in, we want to be a part of correcting this thing that missiologists, people who study missions, refer to as the great imbalance. The great imbalance is this, that there is something out of whack in mission sending and missions funding. I'm looking at a friend, Swayze Waters, who's one of our elders here. He does work in some of these spaces that we'll begin to discuss here shortly. I'm grateful for when you give to our church and when you invest, we are thinking about how to correct this great imbalance. Simply put, the great imbalance says this, that there are over 3 billion people and over 7,000 people groups, that's ethnicity and culture and the way all those marry together, that are unreached by the gospel. That's roughly 40% of the world. It's difficult for us to picture in a town like Jackson, state like Mississippi, a nation like America, a continent like North America, that there's such great gospel need. Unreach would be defined by the people that are missiologists to say this, that it's less than or equal to 5% of people who would adhere to any form of Christianity 
and less than 2% evangelical, people that would seek personal relationship and personal holiness and the responsibility to take the gospel to others. Simply put, an author would write that unreached peoples and places are those among whom Christ is largely unknown and the church is relatively insufficient to make Christ known to its broader population without outside help. And in the way that we have sought to address this recently, there are great strides that are being made, but a long way to go. Because we would see that of every one per- every uh, missions dollar given, only 1% goes to reaching unreached people groups. That's $1 of every $100 or one penny of every dollar. You choose your math, 1% of missions giving would go to reaching unreached groups. And that 3% of missionaries sent are going to reach unreached people. People made in God's image where salvation was prepared for them who will never know Jesus. The writer who wrote that went on to continue to say that it would be similar, maybe, for some of us culturally who uh, have heard the name Confucius but would know nothing about him, who he was, where he lived, what his mark on society was. That the loose knowledge of the name of Jesus in some places would carry an equivalent weight. But for others, people would ask if Jesus was some man who lived down the road in a neighboring village. But if we see what Simeon said at Christmas and we take it as our responsibility in the way that we give and we serve and we go and we pray, we intercede for God's glory in the nations, we need to see that Christmas means the gospel to the ends of the earth. The last thing we see is division. Merry Christmas, I'm talking about being divided. (laughs) And that may not be difficult for you to think about. I think about Jesus himself in Matthew 10, where he would say, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword, and to set people against one another. We would see this, that Simeon would preach to Mary, share, exhort with her. He blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that's opposed. Division, division at Christmas. As we begin to close, I'll show you two ways that we're divided. One, that the gospel divides us. It brings division in the world. Across the world, we are divided because of the gospel. And we just talked about the great imbalance. We talked about how the gospel is hard to get to some places because of geopolitical structures and commitments to other religions that choke out the gospel. But we see that the big world, even here in Jackson, our larger external world, the gospel brings division. This line that Simeon would say sticks out to me. It's a sign that's opposed a sign that's opposed. Other translations would say that it's a sign that's spoken against. That to see Jesus, to see what he calls us to, to live a life following in his way and practicing his presence, that it would be something that would set us against one another. That people would see the gospel and they would say, I don't want that. That doesn't make sense. That's not for me. If you've shared the gospel with many people in your life or been around church for a little while, even read a book, perhaps, you know that often people will say, hey, this Jesus, he seems great, but what about this? It's the what about this is, right? You have what about this is, I have what about this is, the world has what about this is. 
But when people consider coming to faith, they do things like this often. Hey, I, lo- I, th- I, think, I think I'm here with you on Jesus. My sin, I know, I know I'm not a great person. I know uh, that I have some things to clean up in my life. This Jesus seems like a great way. But what about sexuality? What about money? What about commitment and fidelity till death do us part? Doesn't that seem archaic? People have these oppositions to the gospel. They would look at the life that Jesus would call us to, of faithfulness and fidelity, of service and sacrifice, of following in his way, as we see that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That he would call us in a way that feels so unnatural, even to us. That's easy for people to speak against and say, not me, that's too much. And we miss it, but Christmas in this passage reminds us of this, that the central message of the gospel is not just what he can do for you, but who he is for you. Who he is for you. If Jesus is for you, Lord, God, Savior, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. If he's the things we say and sing at Christmas, then the opposition that we feel towards him should fall in line. It's not just what he can do for you, but it's who he is for you. That becomes how we follow Jesus, and we unify our opposition. The second thing we see is the fall and the rising that's appointed. The fall and the rising, that word fall is only used one other time in New Testament Greek, And it's at the end of Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus would summarize the Sermon on the Mount and say this, that this is like two people who built a house, one built on the sand and the other built on a firm foundation. And when the rains came and the storms came and the flood came and the wind blew, suffering, calamity, hardship of life, one house lasted and one house didn't. The house that was built on the sand, the people who heard the words of Jesus, beheld him, and chose otherwise. Their house fell, and Jesus says great was the fall of it. It's the fall that comes for those who would build their life opposed to Jesus. They would be too prideful to see a need for salvation. They would be too prideful to follow him in faithful obedience. They would say, God, you stay on your side, I'll stay on my side. But submitting to the lordship of Jesus is not just giving him a seat at the table. It's him coming into the table and saying, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired, you get a new job, I'm in charge now. And for people who would oppose that view of Jesus, that he's boss and Lord and God and King, there's a fall destined for them, both in this life and in the life to come. But the rising that we experience, even those of us that know Jesus and trust that one day we'll be with him and will rule and reign forever, that he makes all things right and will come back to make all things more right, we still experience a fall. I don't know if you've been following Jesus long enough, but the Christian life is hard. People are surprised often when their life after being serious about following Jesus is more complicated than their life before they were following Jesus. Isn't he supposed to have an easy yoke and a light burden? Why are things so complicated? Why do things feel so unnatural? But we see this, that for us, even in our suffering and our insecurity and our double-mindedness, that there's still for us is comfort in our fall. This is what Micah would write a few hundred years before Jesus came. He would say, Rejoice not over me, my enemy, when I fall, for I shall rise. And when I sit in darkness, 
the Lord shall be a light to me. You may have spots in your life where you feel like you have had to fall down as you follow Jesus. Maybe you've fallen down to your knees in desperate prayer as you want broken things to be made whole. Maybe you've lost some opportunity at work or or in a social setting because you've chosen the way of Jesus over the way of folly. Whatever it is for you, as you fall and you feel alone and desperate, God sees you, and there, in your darkness, He is a light to you, a light to you. As I think about the portion of this passage that stuck out to me the most, Gina, if you'll put it on the screen, if you'll put Luke 2.35 on the screen, I will invite our band back up. And uh, ministry gives you a lot of connections. You guys may know that. And it's cool stuff often like, hey, do you need to borrow a car or maybe come on this vacation with me? I'll always accept a free vacation for the record. But I felt really connected this week whenever I had a sword guy. <laughs> and uh, that's when you know that you're living life right, when you've got a sword guy. So if you want his number, I'll let you know. He pulled up to the church a couple days ago like a Russian's arm dealer. He just popped the trunk and said, take your pick of swords. And this is the one that I picked. But let's read this. I'll read this for us. Luke 2.35, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is what Jesus would say and what the sword teaches us, is that there's something in us that Jesus divides when we follow him. We too were the people who opposed him. We too were the people who embraced our fall before we rise. But there's still this pain inside of us, right? It's the sword that pierces. Like when I think about a sword, I think about, I don't know how to slash this. I need a nerd to come up here and help me. But if I thought about this, I'd like cut in half, right? And that's sometimes what the Christian life feels like. It feels like we've been starkly cut in half. That we have this faithful side of us, right? It's like, I want to be be, uh, generous, but what about this? I want to love and serve my family well and be faithful to my spouse what about this? I want to be a good neighbor and serve and sacrifice, but what about this? And we feel this division inside of us. It brings division to our internal world. The gospel brings division to your world. And it's important for you and I to consider what does this mean for us? Where has Jesus pulled you from and what is Jesus pushing you to? The language there of a sword through It's the same language that Jesus would use when he traveled and he passed through a region. Jesus desires in your heart, in my heart, and the hearts of the world to go and conduct his business. But it's painful when you feel the ways that you would prefer your comforts, your old self, your old way. When you would find those things feel like you're being torn apart as you choose faithfulness. We think that Jesus lops us in half But instead, what he does so often is with that sword, he performs surgery. And like the careful hand of a surgeon that would go into our heart and would cut, this doesn't honor me. This is holding you back from growing. This is a cancer for you. Jesus in holiness would move into our deepest places, the inside of who we are, that he would reveal the thoughts of our heart for what they are and that he'd heal us through the division. So I want to invite you to stand.
as we begin to pray together and close the service. As you do, I just want you to think, what are the spots in your life where you feel divided? What are the things you can feel God pulling you away from? Where are the places where you've said, no, Lord, you can't have that? And how at Christmas can we see the gospel, the power of the gospel, where Jesus would see us, and instead of condemnation, we receive grace. And instead of someone against us, we receive our God for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. I'm thankful, God, for every man and woman and child in this room, for your great grace. And Lord, when we see that you are willing to bear the ultimate sword, the wrath of God for us, Lord, we thank you. God, no longer do we have to count you as cold and distant, far off and impersonal. But in Christmas, we see that you are willing to come into the world, that all other faiths would say, I'm God, you come get me. You said, I'm God and I'm coming to get you. So God, for each of us, would you help us to embrace your nearness? God, we know that although you gave Mary a sword, you give each of us a sword through our own soul also. God, would you show us where our disobedience is? God, where we hold on to our sin too closely. Can we do what Hebrews does? And could we throw it off the sin that easily entangles? God, we repent of the times that we push you back. We don't let you do your work. Lord, we thank you for the way that your gospel is good news for all people in all of time. And Lord, I pray this week, this Christmas season, the God, we can see how your gospel is good news to us. And our brokenness and our hurting and our hoping and our longing, Lord, would we be dedicated to you and willing to let you do your work. We ask these things in your great name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. We'll continue to worship through song. If there's any way we can pray for you, I'll be down front. A few other staff will as well. Uh, it's a privilege for me to pray over someone who's going to the doctor in a couple days, praying for good news. So if there's anything we can do to pray with you, for you, uh, we'll be down front.